are thrilled today on the National Rural Ed Association podcast to have an awesome guest with us, Brandon Gibson from the governor's office in Tennessee, who is the senior advisor to the governor and uh, charged with uh, looking at rural initiatives and how to support rural communities, uh, other things, but that's one of the primary uh, functions that Brandon uh, is charged with. And so Alan and I are anxious to talk to her because it's our home state. And so uh, anytime that um, we can put Tennessee forward, I at least, I know Alan is a little more uh, agnostic, uh, has to be, but uh, I love putting Tennessee forward. So very excited to have Brandon here. And and I've uh, been fortunate enough to get to work with Brandon in some professional settings and different things across the state and and get to network with her. So a little background on Brandon, who uh, actually I could spend the whole podcast on her bio, so I'm just going to try to hit the highlights. Uh, Former lawyer, former judge, former growing up on a soybean farm in a rural community in West Tennessee in Crockett County, Tennessee. Can't get much more rural than being in Crockett County, Tennessee. And uh, now she is senior advisor to Governor Bill Lee and has, I I see her all over the state. So I mean, beyond, (laughs) she is definitely trying to get out there in uh, rural communities and support the work that's going on there. So, Brandon, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Brandon, thanks for taking time. And uh, we do appreciate uh, Governor Lee's efforts to recognize rural Tennessee and to highlight and spotlight what's going on in rural and in ways to kind of help our rural communities as well. Yeah, and so uh, if you could just kick us off a little bit with... um, your background um, and uh, tell us, you know, what did it it mean coming from a rural community to uh, the various positions you have and now you are senior advisor to the governor and so obviously somebody that's an influencer on policy and practice and programs and systemic change. So just if you could uh, highlight for us your journey to where you are right now. Well, you like to think sometimes that life takes you from uh, one place to another in a, in a straight line, but that has definitely not been my experience. Uh, to, to be fair to my true homeland, my family farm is, is actually in Dyer County. I grew up in Dyersburg, um, actually not in the city, but out in the country. I was the fourth generation to live and work on a family farm, raising soybeans, hay, Angus cattle. Um, Instead of going on vacations, my summers were full of running around cattle pastures or sitting on the back of a four-row planter as we were planting soybeans over and over again when it got rained out. Um, I grew up going to public schools in Dyer County. My mother was a public school teacher there in in the Dyersburg City School System, and so I graduated from Dyersburg High School and left Dyersburg and went to Mississippi State, um, followed a boy who I happened to marry a few years later, and that seems to have worked out pretty well 25 I'm glad, years later. I'm glad that story, where I, when you started that with followed a boy, I thought, uh-oh, where's this going? So that, <laughs> yeah, we were worried about that one, yeah. 
Well, we'll be married 25 years this year, so I think it's worked out okay. Just don't ask him. Um, but I went to uh, I went to Mississippi State and majored in agricultural business down there and got a master's degree in ag business. I really thought I probably would leave Mississippi State and go and and maybe go to law school and focus on agricultural law, but ultimately I. Uh, decided to to go to Dallas, Texas, went to the big city, really the first big city I was ever exposed to um, on a long-term basis, and got my law degree there and practiced law out there for a year before I realized that, you know, West Tennessee really kind of draws you home. So we moved back home and, and settled in Crockett County then, where I began uh, practicing law in nearby metropolitan Jackson. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, and, and I almost stopped you earlier when you said you uh, graduated from Dyersburg City. It cracks me up um, as I go across Tennessee in, in my role that you've got quote-unquote city school systems that, you know, are in the middle of a cornfield or, or a soybean field or in, in uh, you know, surrounded by mountains, but but yet they're that we call them city schools, so it's that's. I, I, I don't know if that's an anomaly to, to Tennessee, but Pratt, you could probably speak to that more since you're the world traveler. I think if the you know, city school system, if it's in the middle of, uh, I guess as you would say, a cornfield, it would be considered a rural city district. I think we're okay. And I've been to Dyersburg, so I can verify that she is in a rural zip code. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, when I was growing up, Dyer County had two school systems, of course, Dyersburg City School System and Dyer County. And because we lived on a farm, I was actually zoned to go to Dyer County. But because my mother taught school in the city school system, I was able to go to the city school. And I, I heard my parents talk about how they struggled with whether the right thing to do was send me to the school where I was zoned or whether they would do the easy thing, which was to take me in my mom's car every day to and from school, um, since I was basically going to the same school where she taught. So ultimately, I think they uh, they opted for ease, but all the schools in Dyer County have had really good, um, really good reputations and a really good opportunity for education for the, the kids that have come through those, either one of those school systems. So basically, you had a school choice thing going on already. Um, that's a joke, by the way. We're kidding. We're not going to go on that route on this call. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Um, so t tell us a little bit about, um, we, you know, you talked about your background, how you were raised and where you came from. And you've obviously learned a lot of lessons growing up with the hard work and, and doing what's right in your community. What are some things you bring from that experience to your office every day? Well, that's a really good question. Um, you know, there is a, an, a work ethic that I think folks from rural communities really embody. Um, you know, it wasn't uncommon during the winter months for my, my dad to put me on a, on a tractor with him to go feed cattle. You just bundled up and you went out and you did what needed to be done. That's one of the things that I hope that the governor is able to say that I'm, I'm doing is that I'm just doing what needs to be done. Um, but also just having that perspective. I think it's really important for elected leaders to have people around them who have a variety of different perspectives. 
And so many of the things we talk about here, policy, budget issues, legislative issues, when I think through them, I think through them based on how they would impact the people I grew up with, my own parents, my child, or the people I go to Sunday school with. And, and so it's really important for us as we sit here, we kind of call it being in the bubble. You get to, um, to into government, and, and sometimes it's really easy to forget that you're in a bubble. And you need to make sure you're thinking about a variety of things based on how it affects people where you live or where you came from. So I, I hope that's, that's an important thing I bring is just a different perspective that other folks might not have. Yeah. And, and in thinking about that, and when I know that um, Governor Lee really has a heart for rural Tennessee, I mean, I, I don't know that I've heard him speak that the word rural wasn't embedded somewhere in in his um, speech or just even in casual conversations with groups he is always highlighting the needs in rural um, Tennessee so I think we're gonna have to do that again because Alan's playing on his phone and he's doing something I'll take the four second pause sorry (laughs) (laughs) okay let me ask you again so with that in mind, growing up in a, a, a rural community and upbringing and those values and work ethics you bring to this role, and you're working with a governor, advising a governor that really has a heart for rural Tennessee, and I don't think I've heard him give a speech or even in a casual conversation that the word rural doesn't come up somewhere in that dialogue. And uh, so you've got this perspective, you've got this opportunity. What is exciting you right now as a state leader that you're either a policy or program that is being implemented to support rural communities or you hope to implement to support rural communities? So, you know, one of the things that I've been amazed that we're able to do is that the governor has this power to convene. And it's a very unique power. When the governor's office calls and asks someone to come to Nashville or meet us somewhere out in the communities, out somewhere in the state, people generally show up. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. let, let me know that person that turns down the governor's invitation. I, I'd like to do a podcast with them. Well, well, we've been at it a year, and I haven't seen it yet, but I will, I'll take notes for you, Jared. Uh, but one of the things we did early on is we hosted a what we called a Rural Opportunity Summit. And we invited leaders from 15 of our more economically distressed communities. Um, the governor was very focused on, A, having that event in a distressed community, going to the people that we are trying to serve, Um, B, he wanted to make sure that the people who were invited were were a a huge variety of people, everything from the county mayor to someone representing um, commerce and industry. Most often that was the chamber director, someone from the school system, because we recognize what what a huge role the schools play in economic and community development and even in industrial recruitment. And then we wanted nonprofit leaders 
So he's his philosophy on life is that government alone is not the answer, and it takes nonprofit community and the business community and the government working together in order to solve our biggest challenges. So we brought all those people to Perry County, Tennessee, uh, rural Middle Tennessee, and every commissioner of all 23 departments in Tennessee state government also went to Perry County. We had a cabinet meeting there before, and it was an excellent opportunity for commissioners to hear directly from community leaders. And it was an excellent opportunity for community leaders to hear directly from commissioners that they might have never had contact with otherwise. So that convening power, although that doesn't magically change a community simply by having a meeting, building relationships has the potential to change communities. So that was one step forward in helping build those relationships that are really necessary to help move communities forward and identify and respond to their specific needs. So that's been a really exciting thing that we, we hosted that last August and have continued to see the fruit that, um, that's been produced from that meeting. And those relationships are continuing to flourish. And we're talking a lot about how we can do a better job in serving the state, serving those rural communities, um, how we can make it easier for them to access everything from grants to services, to just having a question answered. Um, oftentimes our rural communities have so much heart and soul in them, but they might not have the, the deepest payroll. Mm -hmm. They might not have the most people. You know, the, the director of schools assistant is probably gonna be a generalist in most everything that a school could ever possibly touch. Mm -hmm. Same thing for a county mayor's assistant. And, and, and let me interrupt you just one second because I think you pointed out something really glaring that I, I see as I go around rural communities. You, you rattled off the attendees for these convenings at schools, chambers, nonprofits, county government, city government, and one that I have never seen so far at any convening are the foundations that you have in urban areas. And I think that's one of the resources that is really lacking for rural communities is they don't have those big foundations that are giving, pouring millions of dollars into the communities. And I really wish there was a way we could reach out to some of these foundations to get them more involved in rural communities, even though, you know, I, most of them have a mission to work in their impoverished areas or do community development, whether it's Memphis, Nashville, Chattanooga, Knoxville. No, you cannot throw a rock without hitting a foundation in any of those cities. And and literally, they pour millions of dollars into the school districts and, and community development. How could we maybe get some foundations beyond national? Because we got some national uh, foundations that, that put some money in rural communities, but our local foundations, how can we get them to extend maybe into some of these communities to help with the wraparound supports, to, to give money to those nonprofits so they can have more capacity to do things in those communities? And just what are your thoughts on that? 
Well, I love that you asked that question. I would like to claim that we had planned for you to ask that because the <laughs> second answer to the question that you asked previously about what, what excites me about what we've done or are doing, one of the things we did last year in the budget is that we invested about $4.5 million in uh, a pilot program with a, with a nonprofit called Communities and Schools. Now, communities and schools is in a lot of urban areas. Some states have communities in, in schools statewide. In Tennessee, prior to last year, communities and schools, to my knowledge at least, was only located in, in Metro Nashville and in Shelby County. That's correct, yep. So, so the state said, I tell you what, we will partner with this nonprofit. We're going to, we want to put up, Four and a half million dollars. We're going to fund 70% of a three year pilot. And we want to put a communities and schools caseworker in 23 high schools in the 15 most economically distressed communities. Wow. Yeah. So we put out 23 caseworkers into 23 high schools in 15 different counties from the far eastern edge of Cock County to the far western edge of Lake County and Lauderdale. Um, so it's a, it's a perfect example of government partnering with a nonprofit. Now the challenge is communities and schools of Tennessee has to raise the other 30% of that funding. And you look at the program in Nashville or in Memphis, and there's a good bit of support for the program from those foundations that you just talked about. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a lot harder to raise philanthropic money in counties that are already economically challenged. So we've been able to, of course, communities and schools is responsible for raising that 30% that match to the to the state dollars but we've been able to kind of highlight the fact that poverty is poverty mm -hmm. and poverty in a rural community i mean you might have to drive a little bit further down the road to get a gallon of milk but poverty in a rural community and poverty in an urban community are still poverty and there are a lot of things that are very consistent with those um, with those populations. So we've, we've been doing some work. The, the communities and schools folks began in these rural high schools in August. So it's still early in the three-year pilot. But some of the stories that have come out have just been remarkable. Um, and it's just an opportunity to put someone in place to help with those wraparound services so that teachers can focus on teaching the content and the subject matter that they need to teach. Right, and, and just so listeners know the difference in communities in schools and community schools is that communities in schools has that support system within the school, in the individual school for students. So, um, man, that, that is, that's awesome that that's going on, especially in the distressed counties. So can you share a little bit about uh, some, maybe one story uh, or some, some specific example from the work going on in those distressed counties with this communities and schools? So one of, one of the stories that um, causes me to, to 
choke up just a little bit every time I every time I tell it is that communities and schools focuses primarily on the causes of absenteeism because if kids aren't coming to school they're not learning or at least they're not learning the content that school wants them to learn let's put it that way but um, a, a student in a rural community has uh, some real problems with with being at school and real problems with absenteeism. So this communities and schools representative is able to pull that child into a special room. The, this particular school set the representative up with their own classroom that she was able to stock with um, toiletry items and extra clothing and just those things that those students might need and might not otherwise have access to pull the child in and say, you know, let's talk about what's going on at home. And the child says, well, I'm not sleeping at night. And when I don't sleep at night, I just can't come to school and pay attention. So I just don't come to school at all. So the communities and schools representative kind of began to dig into the, the issue and come to find out that the student's home was infested with bed bugs. Mm-hmm. So the communities and schools representative who has contacts with the right state agencies and the right kinds of people in the community jumps into action. They take care of the issue. I mean, it required burning mattresses and burning clothing and and really helping this family start over. They start over, new clothing, new mattresses. The child is coming to school every single day her grades have improved drastically. And she looks at you and says, I didn't really realize somebody really cared that much. Oh, wow. That's good. That's and good. Yeah. I, I know from growing up in a rural school that the teachers care that much. But when you've got 30 kids in your class, being able to really dig in and figure out what's causing the absenteeism is a challenge and just providing that extra resource so the teachers can focus on content and we've got somebody else to help with those wraparound services is such an excellent opportunity to make a difference in kids lives and communities yeah i will say in the areas i visit across the nation that when you have those communities that are doing the wraparound and or trying to meet the needs of all their students like you know expressing the story you told uh or the example I think you're seeing some positive results, and I, I applaud the governor's office, applaud your work as well. I think that is uh, much needed, and we hope we can in- increase that across the state, may- possibly down the road in future budgets with the help of, um, uh, you know, community members and or foundations. So yeah. that's good. Let's zoom out just for a second, Brandon, because I know you, um, I mean, there's a lot of things happening in Tennessee, and I know you probably... Uh, you and the governor's team and the governor have a, a vision for other things that you'd like to do in rural communities. But if we zoom out to the national stage, how do you think Tennessee is positioned maybe to lead in this space for other states and you know either through best practices or um, some policies? So because Alan he he deals with that a lot. You know he's in Washington D.C. and 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 talking to our legislators at the national level. So how do you think Tennessee as a state is positioned to be a leader in the country in the rural space? Well, one of the ways I think we, we're uniquely positioned is that 
Tennessee from west to east is uh, looks very different. Yes. And <laughs> lots of folks joke that Tennessee is like three states in one because it's the, the row crop lands of the west and then, uh, you know, rolling hills of the middle and then the mountains of the east. And it's, it's most definitely a different different state from rural West Tennessee to rural East Tennessee. Um, so we have a unique opportunity to be able to show how policies or opportunities can really be spread across that geographic difference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we, have a, we have a ton of opportunities because, you know, our economy is good. We, um, we are very fiscally managed, fiscally uh, conservatively managed as a state. And we have a lot of opportunities to help um, everything from rural broadband to the, the way we handle our, our education system across the state. You know, the rural challenges that Tennessee faces are not unique to Tennessee. As you said, there are states across the country that are um, that are struggling with this the same issue and we've got um, migration out of rural areas into metropolitan areas and i don't know that there's been any one state that's been able to quote unquote solve the problem mm -hmm. um, but i think we are uniquely positioned we've got the right people at the table i think we have the right conversations going on and we've got the right focus to be able to come up with some unique opportunities and some unique solutions to the challenges that we face and and i think it's um i'm glad you brought up the point about the different geographic areas of tennessee because i drive all over the state and i'm in these different rural communities and it cracks me up because each each one of these different rural communities say they're the stepchild of the state. Nashville never listens. You know, they all think, <laughs> all think that they're the stepchild of the state uh, just because they're isolated. But it is so different, that western part of Tennessee. You know, if I drive 30 miles out there, it takes me 20 minutes. And then southeast Tennessee, where I live and where I'm from, if I drive... Uh, 30 miles it takes 60 minutes you know because all the curvy mountain roads and but I, I know Alan if you would speak to this because you're all over the country and rural means different things to different people and you know we always fall back on our old definition of, of what is rural well if you think you're rural you're rural you know because it is so different across the country so just speak a little bit to that. Well you, you brought up Brent you brought up a good point about maybe traveling a little bit further to get a gallon of milk and poverty's poverty. You know, we always look at it from a sense of, uh, and a lot of times in the Midwest and out West, they talk about how far is it to Walmart? Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's the one. <laughs> that's and, and we complain about maybe driving 45 or 50 minutes. And there's people, uh, good friends of mine in Montana that we work with, you know, that trip to the store may be an hour. Uh, mm -hmm. That trip to the doctor's office may be three hours, but that's a normal drive a lot of times for them. Um, and I think that's a total different rule than, than what we, you know, deal with and live with every day. Um, you know, and then how the federal government looks at rural compared to state government and how we look at it, obviously very different. But uh, it is unique. In Tennessee, really, it's three states, but almost could be five in one because yeah. of <laughs> Upper East Tennessee uh, and Southeast are a little bit different. And, um, and obviously, I guess, Northwest and North... Uh, Southwest Tennessee are totally different as well. Yeah, yeah, and um, it, it, 
I'm going to put a plug in for the NRA conference here because that's one of the things I love about going to that conference is you've got people from rural Midwest or from, from agriculture, so Indiana, you know, where the schools are pulling kids from like 100 square miles or so, you know, from these farms and yet and they only have maybe 50 kids in the schools and uh, Alan loves the one-room schoolhouses out in Montana and so I, that's one of the things I, I love about going to that conference is you get to meet all these people that have a different definition of rural. So we needed to drag you there this year, Brandon. Yeah, you can come November 4th through the 6th in Indianapolis. Love to have you. That'd be great. So uh, this, is, this is my back pocket question that I love to ask people, uh, whether it's on a panel or on podcast. So I'm going to get ready, get get locked in, tighten up the the boot laces. Actually, should say this is one thing before we before we start tailing <laughs> off here that we should have brought up earlier. Uh, Brandon is a rodeo queen. She is. I'm not a rodeo queen. <laughs> not a queen. I'm a rodeo mom. Okay. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Which is worse than any rodeo queen possible. So for our folks on the East Coast, how's that different than a dugout mom? <laughs> well, I, let me tell you how that's different than a dugout mom. A dugout mom takes snacks, bats, gloves, and cleats. I'm responsible for massive horses, saddles, feed. I, I made I made the mistake of making fun of a friend of mine for doing travel baseball. <laughs> Came back to and haunt about you. two years later, we got into rodeo. And in December, my husband and daughter drove from West Tennessee to Las Vegas, Nevada, hauling two horses with them. Wow. I, I, I just about believe we've lost our minds. But, now, you just uh, described Colorado, uh, let's say Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. Wyoming. Uh, so those parents there kind of feel your pain, I would think, you know? Yes, they do, and we meet up with them sometimes in those locations. Yeah, you pretty much met a lot of our conference folks, and yeah. if you met up with them. Yeah, you're going to see some familiar faces. Uh, yeah, that that sounds like a lifestyle choice there. That's 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 not just the weekend Little League. I'm impressed. It's great. I wouldn't change it for the world. It, it, we talk about growing up in rural Tennessee, you learn, or, or in rural America even, you, you learn a certain work ethic. Um, you put a kid in charge of multiple horses, feeding, mucking stalls, no matter how rainy, wet, or cold it is, and uh, you really start to begin to build a kid who's full of resilience and grit and perseverance and determination. And it's a, it's a joy to watch them develop into that. And I, I just hope that as she's an adult, she'll be able to, to carry on those traits. Yeah, and it, I grew up on a farm of horses. And when I was real little and I'd go with my grandpa to feed the horses or feed the cattle, you know, dumping hay off the back of a truck or going to the the feed stalls for I thought that was so cool. Like, let me pour that, Grandpa. Let me put the feed down the pipe, all this stuff. And until I got to be, you know, about 11 or 12, and it's like, Jared, go feed the horses. Like, <laughs> it, was, it lost its luster at that point, you know. <laughs> uh, so, okay, here's my back pocket question now that I love to ask. So now this is when you, you, um, you need to lock in, Brandon. So, okay, I'm prepared. All right. So you get to be 
Harry Potter for a day, or maybe I should say Hermione Granger, and you've got a magic wand, and you can wave it one time to change anything in rural Tennessee, what would you do? Oh, wow. What a difficult question. I told I you to lock in. One thing. I told you to lock in. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll do what my kid used to do to me. I would wave my magic wand and say, I want the power to wave my magic wand as many times as I possibly <laughs> want. All the wishes. Well, thank you for putting that caveat in. I will have to start putting a disclaimer from now before <laughs> I ask that question. So I'll give you I'll give you a break then since you outwitted me. And, uh, and one, the judge and lawyer. See, I see the judge and lawyer coming out now. Oh, yeah. So, okay, if you could do three things, three things in rural Tennessee. With that magic wand. Okay. Three things in rural Tennessee. If I could wave a magic wand, the first one would be I would figure out a solution for uh, youth retention in our communities. I'd figure out a way to keep the best and brightest that are born and raised in these rural communities in those rural communities where they continue to contribute and help those communities thrive. That's one. Two, I would probably want to, and all, funny enough, most of these uh, that I would wave my magic wand and create deal with education because I, I really believe that that is uh, the place where we can do the most investment for our, for our future. Um, for our future communities. Second thing I'd do is I'd figure out a way where we could make every high school and middle school in the state a learning exploration mm -hmm. where students can hands-on learn what it's like to be a nurse, learn what it's like to be a pilot, learn what it's like to put your hands in the dirt and, and grow plants in a greenhouse, uh, learn what it's like to build a robot, I would make every middle school and high school have all of those options where kids can be kids right. and learn what's really possible in the world. And then the third thing I think I would do is I would wave a magic wand and make sure that we have uh, plenty of opportunities for, um, for jobs and um, because we've we got to have those jobs in order to have mm -hmm. those talented kids come back to those rural communities. Mm -hmm. Finding that balance between having the, the right number and kind of jobs and opportunities for those kids while still maintaining and hanging on to that rural way of life is a very delicate balance. And if I could wave my magic wand, I would figure out what exactly that balance looks like for every community in rural Tennessee. You really only needed one. You know, I, I think you gave three excellent examples. I think if we did two and we did it really well, we might solve one in three. Yeah. I, you <laughs> might be right. Yeah. Well, I, when, when you were hesitating on three, I thought you were getting ready to say, make Jared the czar of rural Tennessee. I don't think she, you didn't say like if you were in a fantasy world, right? I mean, did you, right? <laughs> and by the way, that would be a good idea.
Yeah, hey, I, I could have a throne. I could yeah, have a, there you go. Like a, a palace in Turtle Town on my farm. A crown um, might be a little bit too much. A, tu- a, a house, like a palace in Turtle Town. A palace in Turtle Town. They, they, the gravel road would still lead up to it. You know, keep it real. Yeah, you got to have the pickup truck at least. Exactly. That's good enough for Sam Walton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is. Um, can we derailed this whole podcast basically on Jerry? <laughs> oh, no, we got real. We got real. Yeah, okay, <laughs> Brent, I'm sorry uh, ahead of time. Okay, <laughs> no, it's good. To, it's good to have some laughs, especially at Jared's expense. There you go. There you go. Well, Brandon, thank you so much for giving us your time today. We know you are a very, very busy person, and uh, man, it's it's a privilege to have somebody of your stature on our humble podcast for NREA and we're really proud of the work you're doing as Tennesseans and really glad you're in the position you're in to uh, help rural communities. Well thank you for the work that that both of you are doing. Your contribution should not go unnoticed and uh, I'm glad that the podcast gives you a platform to talk about what's important to uh, rural Tennessee, rural America, and rural education in particular. Thank you. It means a lot. I appreciate it. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast and website are those of Dr. Alan Pratt, Dr. Jerry Bingham, and Dr. Christopher F. Silver, and do not represent the affiliated universities and or any organization affiliated with the hosts. This podcast and the accompanying material, including our website, represent the opinions of Dr. Alan Pratt, Dr. Jared Bingham, and Dr. Christopher F. Silver, and their guests to the show and website. The content here should not be taken as medical or professional advice and should be used at your own risk. The content here is for informational purposes only and should be understood as such. The Rural Voice podcast or its hosts do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast. And the information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement. Further, the content of this podcast are the property of the National Rural Education Association and are protected under U.S. and international copyright and trademark law. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without prior written permission. By listening to this podcast, you agree to the terms and conditions, and while we make every effort to ensure that the information that we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Thank you.